Letter eleven of A Lady's Life on a Farm in Manitoba by Mrs. Cecil B. Hall. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. May twenty eighth. Our weather is improving. Today has been lovely, but alas, with the warmth have come the mosquitoes. I don't believe you will ever see us again. They, the mosquitoes, bite so fearfully, even in the daytime, that they will devour us up entirely. A is having wire coverings made for the doors and windows, but unfortunately, owing to the floods after the melting of the snow, all the stores which ought to have arrived in Winnipeg a month ago have been delayed, and the shops are very short of goods of all sorts and kinds. There are said to be four thousand cars with provisions, etc., between this and St. Paul. A and I spent an afternoon at the other farm, Boyd, which he rents of a Mr. Boyd, three thousand acres for forty pounds a year. It is covered with low brushwood, with a few trees here and there, and a good deal of marsh, and therefore unfit for cultivation, so they keep it entirely for their cattle and for the cutting of hay in summer. It is a much prettier place than this, the house being surrounded by trees, whereas here we haven't one within seven miles, though last year they did their best and planted nearly five hundred round the house as avenues to the drive, but only a few survived the drought of last autumn and severe cold of the winter, the rest are represented by dead sticks. We tried to see the cattle at Boyd's, but they were always feeding on the marsh, and could only be looked at from a distance, as we neither of us felt inclined to run the chance of being bogged, or of wetting our feet. In coming home we called at the tent, and I was surprised to find how quickly Messrs. H. and L. were building their stable, which is to be large enough to hold two stalls and a room beyond, which, when they have a house, will make a good loose box, but for the time being they intend to live in it, either sleeping in the loft or tent. To build a house or stable is not very difficult, but with no carpenter or experienced man to help it wants a certain amount of ingenuity. You lay out your foundation by putting thick pieces of oak, called sills, on the ground in the shape of your house. In town these sills are nailed to posts which have been driven eight feet into the ground, but on the prairie they are simply laid on the flat. Onto the sills come the joists, planks two by six placed on edge across two feet apart then the uprights which stand on the sills two feet apart form the walls to these you nail rough boards on each side with a layer of tar paper in between if building a stable if a dwelling house on the inside you put against your rough board lathes and then plaster on the outside the tar paper and siding the floor is made by nailing rough boards on the joists, then tar paper, and on top of that tongued and grooved wood, fitting into each other, to make it air tight. The roofs, which are almost always pointed on account of the snow, are composed of rafter two by four, two or three feet apart, with rough boards across, then tar paper and shingles. The latter are thin, flat pieces of wood laid on to overlap each other. We send you a small sketch of our buildings, which will give you a better idea of these frame houses than any description. They can be bought ready-made at Chicago, and are sent up with every piece numbered, so that you have no difficulty in putting them together again. Our own house is twenty-four feet square, with a lean-to as a kitchen. The dining and drawing-rooms are each twelve feet square, separated by sliding doors, A's bedroom, the entrance hall, and staircase dividing the remainder of the house. Our front door is not quite in the center, but thanks to the veranda one does not perceive it. Above, looking due south, we have a bedroom, dressing-room, and large cupboard for our clothes. There are two other rooms at the back for the men. 
The other house is for the laborers, of whom there are eleven, with a woman as cook, the wife of one of them. It is also for a warehouse, where all the spare implements and stores are kept. Besides these houses we have two good stables, one holding fourteen horses, the other the remaining six, also the cows, pigs, and chickens during the winter, piggeries, and at last, but not least, my chicken-house. A has presented me with a dozen hens, for which he had to pay thirteen dollars, which with the seven old ones are my special charge, and are an immense amusement and occupation. His farm here, as he has other land elsewhere besides the Boyd farm, consists of four hundred and eighty acres, half of one section and a fourth of another. All the surveyed country in the Northwest Territory has been divided into townships thirty-six square miles, and they again into sections of a mile square, which are marked out by the surveyors with earth mounds thrown up at the four corners in the form of right-angle pyramids, with a post about three feet high stuck in the center. The mounds are six feet square, with a square hole on each side. To the marking of sections a similar mound is erected, only of smaller dimensions. The sections are numbered as shown by the following diagram. Southeast is number one. Southwest is number six. Northeast is number thirty-six. Northwest is number thirty-one. The townships are numbered in regular order northerly from the international boundary line or forty-ninth parallel of latitude, and lie in ranges numbered east and west from a certain meridian line, drawn northerly from the said forty-ninth parallel from a point ten miles or thereabouts westward of Pembina. When the government took over the territory from the Hudson Bay Company in 1870, two entire sections in every fifth township, and one and three-quarters in every other, were assigned to the company as compensation. There were also two sections reserved as endowment to public education, and are called school lands, and held by the Minister of the Interior, and can only be sold by public auction. The same was done for the half-breeds. Two hundred and forty acres were allotted to them in every parish. Their farms are mostly on the rivers, along the banks of which all the early settlers congregated, and to give each claimant his iota the farms had to be cut up into long strips of four miles long by four hundred yards wide. On every section line running north and south, and to every alternate running east and west, nine feet, or one chain, is left for roads. Our farm buildings are not quite in the center of the estate, on account of having to make the drive up to the house beyond the marsh on the eastern boundary. I have drawn you a plan of the farm. The spaces covered with the little dots are the marshes. The one on the west extends for miles, and has a creek or dike dug out by the government to carry off the water. From the drawing it looks as if there was much marsh around us, but this bit of ground was the driest that could be found not already taken up. As it was, A purchased it of a man who has some more land near Winnipeg, giving him five dollars per acre. The numbers thirty and thirty-one mean the section of the townships. For immigrants wishing to secure a homestead, which is a grant of one hundred and sixty acres given by the government free, with the exception of an office fee, amounting to ten dollars, on all the even-numbered sections of a township, he will now have to travel much further west, as every acre around Winnipeg is already secured, and has in the last two years risen most considerably in value. The Canadian Pacific Railroad Company, which was given by government twenty-five million acres, 
besides the twenty-five million dollars to make the line across the country from Thunder Bay on Lake Superior to the Rockies, sell their land, which is on odd-numbered sections of every township, for twenty-four miles on each side of the track, with the exception of the two sections, eleven and twenty-nine, reserved for school lands, for two dollars fifty cents, or ten shillings per acre, to be paid in installments, giving a rebate of one dollar twenty-five cents, or five shillings per acre, if the land is brought into cultivation within the three or five years after purchase. A man occupying a homestead is exempt from seizure for debt, also his ordinary furniture, tools, and farm implements in use, one cow, two oxen, one horse, four sheep, two pigs, and food for the same for thirty days, and his land cultivated, provided it is not more than the one hundred and sixty acres, also his house, stables, barns, and fences, so that if a man has bad luck, he has a chance of recovering his misfortunes. In one of your letters you ask if a poor man, coming out as a laborer, and perhaps eventually taking up land as a homestead or otherwise, would encounter many difficulties. I fancy not, as both the English and Canadian governments are affording every facility to immigrants, who can get through tickets from Liverpool, London, or Ireland at even a lower rate than the ordinary steerage passenger. They can have themselves and their families booked all the way, the fares varying from nine pounds five to the twenty-eight pounds paid by the saloon. On board ship the steerage have to find their own bedding and certain utensils for use. Otherwise everything is provided, and, I am told, the food is both good and plenty of it. Regular authorized officers of the Dominion government are stationed at all the principal places in Canada to furnish information on arrival. They will also receive and forward money and letters, and every one should be warned and put on their guard against the fictitious agents and rogues that infest every place, who try to persuade the newcomers into purchase of lands or higher rates of wage. We heard the other day of an English gentleman being taken by one of these scoundrels, and giving a lot of money for land which on examination proved to be worthless. Luckily for him there was some flaw in his agreement, and his purchase was cancelled. Men who intend buying land should be in no great hurry about their investments. The banks give a fair percentage on deposits, and it is always so much more satisfactory to look around before settling. As she has to cart all her own sods to make a foundation, and then heap soil on to them, but having brought a quantity of seeds from England, she feels bound to sow them, and hopes they will make a grand show later on, and the place quite gay. You should have seen the beam of delight which shone on the countenance of a stranger who had come out from Winnipeg for the night, when on arrival he was immediately pressed into E's service to carry water for these said seeds. The temperature is now at sixty-four degrees, and, as things grow as if by magic, we hope they will soon put in an appearance. Oats planted only a week ago are now an inch above the ground. We have had a nice breeze the last two or three days, so that the mosquitoes have not worried us so much. The prettiest things to see here are the prairie fires at night. The grass is burnt in spring and autumn, so as to kill off the old tufts and allow of the new shoots for growing hay. The fires look like one long streak of quivering flame, the forked tips of which flash and quiver in the horizon. Magnified by refraction, and on a dark night are lovely. In the daytime one sees only volumes of smoke which break the monotony of the landscape, though I don't know that it is picturesque. With a slight breeze the fire spread in a marvelous way, even at the rate of eight or nine miles an hour. The other day A and Mr. H., 
whilst putting up their tent, did not perceive how near a fire they themselves had lighted at some distance was getting, until it was upon them. They then had to seize hold of everything, pull up the tent pegs as best they could, and make a rush through the flames, singeing their clothes and boots a good deal. The pastures on the burnt prairie are good the whole summer, and animals will always select them in preference to any other. The wild ponies, be the snow in winter ever so deep, by pawing it away, subsist on these young shoots and leaves of grasses, which are very nutritious and apparently suffer little by the frost, which only kills the upper leaves, but does not injure what is below. The mirage is also very curious. The air is so clear that one often sees reflected, some way above the horizon, objects like the river, trees, and even the town of Winnipeg, which we could not otherwise see. We could actually, one evening, at sunset, distinguish the gaslights. End of letter 11. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox files are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.